Welcome to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast. Each week we'll be joined by a guest or two to discuss the law, how politicians are improving it or screwing it up, and what it all means for our increasingly battered, unwritten constitution. We're hoping to be entertaining as well as serious, and we're definitely not going to be an echo chamber. All ideas are welcome here. I'm Ken McDonald, the former Director of Public Prosecutions and a criminal barrister at Matrix Chambers. And I'm Tim Owen, also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. In this week's episode, Ken and I talk to Edward Fitzgerald QC. Edward is an old friend and fellow member of the bar. I reckon if you were to ask most lawyers who they regard as the most influential human rights lawyer of the past 40 years, most would say it's Edward Fitzgerald. We lawyers generally work within the law. We apply the law. Edward is that rare example of someone who's changed the law in the field of prisoners' rights, the legality of the death penalty, the rights of the mentally ill. Edward's case record is extraordinary. He's consistently acted for people who have attracted widespread public condemnation. For many years, he and I represented Moore's murderer, Myra Hindley, in her challenge to the decision of the Home Secretary to impose a whole life sentence on her some 30 years after she was first sentenced. He acted for John Venables and Robert Thompson, the 10-year-old children convicted of the horrific murder of James Bulger. Edward has defended people charged with grave terrorism offences, and he acted for the black cab rapist John Warboys in the challenge brought by his victims to the parole board's decision to direct his release on licence. At a time when lawyers acting for Russian citizens subject to sanctions are under attack, we thought Edward would be the ideal person to speak to about the ethics of acting for unpopular people. In the course of our discussion, we cover why he became a human rights lawyer, his Catholic upbringing, crime, punishment, the rights of victims, and why it's important that bad people are properly represented. A word about the sound quality. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago when we were scattered around the world, and at times the quality is not as good as we would like. So apologies for that. But we think the issues raised by this discussion are important, and so we hope you enjoy it, even if the sound isn't as perfect as we would like. We've since invested in some fancy recording equipment, and so uh, hopefully things can only get better. unsavory clients and uh, the politics and the ethics of all of that. But before we do it, just tell us how come you got into, into this area of law in the first place? Well, um, I think I always liked the law. I like the, well, so I like the idea of the law because, you know, it's got some sacred element to it and it's um, a system. But I like the idea of being an advocate to um, fighting for people. Probably an idealised view from films. Yeah, um, most people who know you wouldn't think that systems is uh, exactly what uh, you're uh, always about. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm interested. I think, I think I was interested in the idea of a, well, of a sort of scholarly pursuit where you deepen your knowledge of, 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 of the law. But, but, but most of all, I like the idea of being an advocate, standing up for people, and that was probably derived from idealised visions in films and books. And, yes. yeah. and why not? I mean, you, you had you, why not a different branch of the law? I mean, you had a stellar mm. academic career, double first at Cambridge. I mean, a lot of your contemporaries with that sort of background would have gone into commercial chambers or chancery chambers and now be earning four or five billion pounds a year, which I assume you're not. Uh, not yet, but the, uh, <laughs> there's always hope. Uh, so why not, why, not, why not one of the more conventional 
I, areas. Frankly, I don't think I would have been any good at them. So I, so I, I, I mean, bored, uh, bored, and probably not sufficiently um, technical. Um, um, so I think probably I was drawn to criminal law, always interested in criminal law and issues of prisons and punishment, and uh, so that was really where my interest and passion prisons was. Prisons and punishment. Prisons is going to a Catholic boarding school. <laughs> I think there may be because there wasn't really any developed concept of human rights law in those days, was there? We're talking about the late 70s, early 80s, when there was prison law, which Tim was also yes. expert in. But judicial review was sort of in his infancy. It, it? it was, yes. And I mean, I was I was vaguely aware, because I'd met James Fawcett of you know, the European Convention of Human Rights, but very sort of vague idea. Um, I, I think there was a wonderful series of lectures at Oxford by Kenny, who was the former Jesuit priest, about the case of Hyams, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the yeah. murder case, and yeah, I yeah. thought this is really, you know, important, interesting, fascinating, exciting. You know, the issue, the issue it was a, a woman who was taking revenge on, I think, someone who had rejected her and set fire to the house and, in fact, burnt down, yeah. I think, the, 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 the occupants, including children. But there was a question of recklessness. But I, I, I kind of remember suddenly seeing, well, all these philosophical concepts have some meaning, you know, questions of Tension and all that they they're in the real world. So criminal, so criminal law was a way in, really. And yes, criminal law. I think I, my interest at the start was quite academic, but then I did, I did, you know, read Crime and Punishment, and Bostiewski, and mm. you know, and those kind of things. And, that, and 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 I was really interested in in um, prisons and prisoners. And, and just going back, uh, and not joking about it, but the Catholic background. I mean, do you think? That, that just bear in mind I'm a Catholic yes, so be, be very careful what you say well I, I was I'm the grandson of a Welsh Baptist <laughs> yeah, we, sometimes it shows we all have, we all have our, our different backgrounds it's your eloquence well. as a result yes yeah. no, seriously um, I mean you and I worked uh, you met me before I became a mm. in the Myra Hindu litigation yeah. which was yeah. about challenging yeah. the right of a politician to interfere with a life sentence now of course she was probably the most loathed um, single yeah. person um, in the country and probably still is by reputation and I remember very distinctly talking to you about it and I got the impression that the concept of forgiveness and redemption yes. were very powerful in your approach obviously you were approaching as a lawyer and making submissions about the legality of interfering yeah. with a life sentence but underlying it was that yes. is that fair? Yeah no I think that's absolutely right I think I kind of do passionately believe in the capacity of people to change and so therefore the capacity of people to, to be reformed by society but also change internally and actually my experience of representing life sentence prisoners including Myra Hindley has been that many of them do um, change um, some of the IRA people I represented had uh, extraordinary yeah. spiritual journeys towards rejecting violence and uh, wishing for um, a sort of redemptive forgiveness. The same was true of Myra Hindi. I accept it was controversial whether she had indeed reformed. Mm. Um, but of many, many other clients I've, I've been involved in both facing the death penalty and long life sentences. But Tim make, makes a, a powerful point, actually, because that whole I mean, I'm no longer practicing Catholic, but that whole idea of confession, yes. wiping the slates clean, being given a second chance, is, is really at the heart of the, the Catholic faith, isn't it? It's, yeah. what, it's what humanity is all about in, in Catholic terms, and that is bound to leave quite a strong mark on any child who's 
brought up no leave it no I think that's right no I think uh, the Catholicism was was big and of course uh, just sort of looking at it, certainly the, redempt, the redemptive idea the idea that everybody has a capacity for change which was very important in all the, the juvenile murderer cases like the Bulger Yandles uh, and Thompson case um, that you had to accept the capacity for change and the, the power to, to be rehabilitated yes. uh, but I suppose yeah, the point I was making I guess is that I got the impression that that was certainly very much part of your thinking and your your, your background no. you didn't have to have that view uh, of, of human nature to to drive you to argue, for example, that a politician shouldn't be interfering yeah. with a life sentence. But I think it gave one a slightly spiritual, some would just say emotional, yeah. um, uh, dimension to becoming a lawyer. And the same is true of one of the areas of work that you have been involved in now for about 40 years um, is uh, strategic litigation around the death penalty, yeah. uh, mainly from former uh, colonies, uh, Eastern Caribbean countries and so on, which retain the death penalty. Uh, and, and your attitude to that, is that similarly informed? By yeah, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I wasn't massively political at the school, but I do remember participating in the debate, speaking against the death penalty and getting quite, you know, worked up about that. And so I think I've always been opposed to the death penalty. And um, of course, we had this curious thing of the Privy Council where indigent people from uh, former colonies could appeal to the Privy Council. And yeah. a lot of lawyers got, in England got involved in those cases. I think there are other reasons for carrying on with it than, than, than religious, but it certainly started off with a feeling that... And what do you say of the, of the argument, which is often... Uh, say it's at a judicial level, which is it's a matter for those countries as to what they choose to do. And if they, by popular demand, retain the death penalty, then it's not up to judges to start litigating them out of that. Particularly, particularly not judges in faraway, yes. faraway former colonial power. Well, it's about the universality of human rights and indeed the universality of humanity and, and the idea that if there is a capacity for change in human beings such that you shouldn't execute someone and the state should not take upon itself to kill them, um, then I think that's a universal principle. And then there are a whole series of things about what it does to the society that executes, uh, kind of degrades it. Uh, just I was just reading Albert Camus on the guillotine the other day, and it's incredibly, um, still incredibly powerful looking at it then. So, I, I mean, you know, Camus was talking against the background of Algeria. You have lots of abolitionists in the Caribbean and in Africa. Um, so I think that the, um, the the real notion is that the norms against the death penalty are, are, are universal and they're not, um, uh, as it were, Eurocentric. For us as lawyers, and we tend to represent yeah. in our practices claimants, appellants, um, defendants. It's very easy for us to, to talk in glowing and rather romantic terms about, yeah. about redemption and salvation yeah. and forgiveness and confessions. And what about redemption for victims? What about justice for victims? And how do they figure in all of this? I mean, we often hear politicians talking about putting victims at the heart of criminal justice, which is which is a nonsense when we have a standard and burden of proof in the way that we do. But what about victims? Where do, they, where do they fit into your worldview, if I can put it? Yes. Well, I think I think that victims must feel that there is a process whereby those who have harmed them or killed their relatives are, are, are 
are tried and there's an open process and they can see justice being done. I, I, my own view is that they, that doesn't involve the death penalty. Yes, well, I agree with that. Yeah, but, 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 um, but so in terms of what we do for, for, for victims, I think it's important that they have a right to see uh, an open and just process going forward. Um, and certainly they have the right, I think, to be heard, for example, at parole hearings for um, those who have been sentenced to life imprisonment for killing their relatives. Yeah, um, actually, I'm not sure I agree with you about that, because I've done a lot of parole hearings mm -hmm. with the, the victim, like yeah. the relative of, yeah. of the victim um, arrives at the parole hearing. Yeah. And I think it's a bit of a con, really, because the reality, as we all know, is that by the time you get to the end of a life sentence, you may be in jail for 20 years or longer. You're then at the point at which everyone has decided you're safe to be released. Mm -hmm. And then you invite the victim or the relative of the victim along, who's there in the room and is invited to, to address the parole board, almost on the basis that it's, it's the, the continuing suffering and distress of that person 20 or 30 years later is relevant to the decision to release. Now, we all know it isn't actually relevant to the issue of release. And I'm a bit uncomfortable. And the same thing applies, doesn't it, to victim impact statements in the Crown Court, that the, the victims make their statements and the judge listens gravely and the, the press publishes them and so on. They're, they're not intended to have a direct impact on the sentence. They're a form of closure yes. for the victim. I think most victims who give impact statements in the Crown Court probably believe that in doing so, they're going to impact sentence. So isn't there, isn't there an issue here about us being less than honest about how the process works to the detriment of victims? Well, I, I, I tell you what, I think that, um, for example, you have someone on the parole board hearing who's saying, I'm rehabilitated and I've gone through all these courses and blah, 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 blah. And it focuses very much on how they've scored in the rehabilitative process. I think that a very real and vivid reminder of, of the nature of their offence um, and its impact sometimes does bring an element of reality to it. That you've got to be sure that, that this rehabilitation is genuine. But I agree, it, it shouldn't. I mean, the victims, the, the views of the relative of the victim yeah. 20 or 30 years later, in reality, yeah. are completely irrelevant. But should they be, Tim? I mean, should they? I mean, isn't there, isn't there, I mean if, if society is... is is, is intending to provide a measure of justice, that must include measure for the victim. Why shouldn't the victim's views, well, 20 or 30 years later, be, be an issue for the parole process? I mean, if, a victim, if a victim is going to feel hugely oppressed, hugely traduced by the release of someone who, for example, has murdered their child, yeah. why shouldn't that be a factor? Well, the answer, well, Edward can, can give his view, but let me just answer your question to me. The answer is the law makes it legally irrelevant. Once you have served the punishment part, if it's a life sentence, once you have served the punishment part of your sentence, it knows the tariff. The only issue mm. then no, is that. it's safe to release you. And the, and the fact that the relative of the, of the long dead person is still devastated by the loss, which of course I understand that's the, law. the case, is I, legally irrelevant. I understand that's the law. The question is whether it should be. Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> it is, what do you think, Edward? Well, I think uh, Tim's right that it may not impact on the dangerousness. However, time and time again at these hearings, the, the moment at which one realizes that the person is dangerous is, is in their attitude to their original offense. Well, if they are- Inside, you mean? Yeah, yeah well, they inside. just, and, and where they're belittling what they did or not acknowledging it fully, or where just a very short question 
about how they feel about some aspect of their offence, their answer to that triggers a recognition that they haven't really changed or that they haven't sufficiently changed. So I suppose, really, if you had a very vivid reconstruction of what they actually did at the start, because it's not just relevant to punishment, it's relevant to, to, to whether, the, whether the person who was capable of doing that really has changed. You know? I suppose, I suppose yeah. what I'm really getting at is mm. that the nature of the crime, the original crime, yes. is, is there right all over right. the papers that are before the yes. deciding on release and inviting the relative of the victim along to anticipate as if they can really yes. influence the outcome. I think is a bit deceptive because yeah. the truth is yeah, I see that, that it, it is a bit of a charade. I, mean, I think we need to acknowledge that the vast majority of the population are probably against us on this and think that the, the, the proposition I made a few minutes ago that, that, that it ought to matter yeah. is the correct position. My, my, my feelings about these were formed when I was still at school and there was a famous documentary series about courts in the United States presented by Walter Merrick, so I can't remember what it's called, but yeah. one of the sequences they filmed was a sentencing hearing in a death penalty case, the jury obviously deciding whether yeah. the penalty should be imposed or not. And the, the murdered victim's wife came into court with an urn containing his ashes, put it on the desk in front of her, and then addressed the jury. And I just felt this is not a ritual which is designed to result in a calm yeah. collected judgment yeah. it's something else and something sinister and, and damaging and, I, and, I, yeah. and so I think the, the, the line that you draw between the victim's influence on sentence and, it, and the victim's incapacity to influence sentence is, is very really different. important to a measured judgment yeah, yeah no, that, no well that, that's definitely right I mean you, well of course I, I've been involved in death penalty sentencing hearings where the victims or the near victim once were two people who victim of attempted murder at the same time as the murder came and gave evidence for the person said don't execute him so yes. I mean sometimes it sometimes it does bring home the realities uh, and it's not always one way I mean I, I mean certainly death penalty not it's not always the case that the victims want the person executed yeah. no, that's that. certainly true so that, link, that leads to another point mm. which is quite recent I know Ken was interviewed on the radio the other day about this because mm. there have been a few well reported cases where the defendant hadn't been convicted has refused to come to court and would come up from the cells into yeah. the dock to be sentenced. Yes. And that has caused outrage and distress for the, um, the victim's relatives who were, you know, the one thing they wanted maybe as part of a closure to do with the trial is to see the person hearing and um, taking their sentence uh, in, in like a, 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 as opposed to being a coward hiding away in the cells. And the point was that there seems to be no legal power whereby you can compel someone. In fact, in fact, the government has now intimated that it's going to bring forward a power for judges to direct that prisoners thanks to your intervention. Well, I'm not sure about that. There's quite no. a wide debate about it, but, mm. but, but, but on pain of contempt being committed. What do you what do you feel about that? Do you think that, obviously no one wants to drag defendants kicking and screaming into court, but sometimes one gets the impression defendants don't come just because on balance they'd rather not. What do you think about, about giving judges a power to to compel attendance. Yeah, I think I think that's justified. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, it's part of it's people publicly. Then we should at least sentence them publicly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yes, I think I, I think the, the 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 process of justice doesn't end until the sentence, and therefore the person should be present. <laughs> Can we 
turn to the the nature and quality of, of one's clients <laughs> doing the, the work that we do. I mean, I, I don't do the volume of human rights work that you do, but, I, but I'm a criminal lawyer and I've represented, as I, as I, as I told their lordships in a debate a, a couple of weeks ago when people were talking about you know, House of Lords, how on earth could anyone represent an oligarch? I've pointed out that I'd often represented men and women I wouldn't invite home for tea. And I, and I guess we're all in that position. I mean, I've represented people who've done truly dreadful things, so have you. Mm. What's the story you tell yourself about that? I just believe everybody should be represented. It's a universal norm of justice. And um, if, if, if we start opting out on the basis that the person's unpopular or it's going to be embarrassing. Um, then we don't have a system of justice. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I also do believe in the cap rank principle. Can we just explain? There may be some people listening who yeah. don't know what the cap rank. Well, so is. let's just get. So the cap, cap rank principle for barristers is that we are not allowed to turn down a case on the basis that we don't like the person, don't like the crimes they've committed, don't like their politics, uh, however appalling they are, and. Um, that if it's in our field and it's at, at, at the level at which we practice, we shouldn't turn yeah. down a case. That, and that, so that's a disciplinary, it could potentially be a disciplinary yeah. offence there for yeah. if you say, I'm not going to represent X because I don't approve of rape or I don't approve of murder. Yes. In fact, I mean, I've been at the bar for 37 years. I don't recall anyone ever being disciplined under the cabaret rule. I mean, has anyone ever done for it? It's sort of on in the breach on the observance. I'm not, I'm not aware of it. And I, I guess the reason is you can always disguise it. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the problem yeah. with the cabaret rule, isn't it? That the reality is that people do choose their cases. I choose my cases. I'm sure Tim chooses his. And I'm, I'm sure you choose yours finally. But if, if one, if one and, and at the same time, one is constantly choosing not to do cases. I mean, yes, I but... to lots of cases. I'm sure you do. So, so you can disguise uh, a decision-making process that is in breach of the cabaret rule if you want to you simply sound too busy or doesn't pay enough and I'm not quite I, I'm not quite sure that's right I mean for example you may get a case certainly in, in my field of prisoners rights where you know from reputation that the client is extremely difficult and unpleasant and unpopular as well if amongst, you, amongst past lawyers as well as the public yeah, yeah 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 I mean you might have Ian Brady was an example I mean he was a difficult man a, I, 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 I didn't actually represent him because I had a bit of a conflict with the fact that Murray and me yeah. were saying it was because of him but he was a deeply unpleasant person and, and very mentally and very mentally ill and very manipulative and representing him would get you be almost certain to get you into difficulties and all that I think that the idea that people could say you purport to act in the area of prisoners' rights this is a, a case in your area of your as it were gravity that's you simply can't say I'm, I'm not going to do it yeah. um, is quite important one it, it shields you from being said oh you're a Brady lover when you take the case two it does actually stiffen your resolve no actually this is my duty that um, I, I've actually got to take this case just because I'd, I'd rather not I can't turn it down and I, so I think in that sense in creating a culture where people feel it's their duty to take even unpleasant okay or, or people who it might be people who are very difficult about paying or something like that yeah. I mean well that's a very good reason I mean when well, you, you, you you can you can refuse in true in true lawyer's fashion that is a justification <laughs> for not following yeah. the but look at I mean the, I don't know whether it's true or not but there is a, there's certainly an account in the 
days after the Guildford bombing, no one yeah. wanted to take the brief. And yeah. lots of QCs who, in whose area it was, who, you know, this was a big murder case, they couldn't possibly say, uh, it's not in my area of expertise. They couldn't possibly say it won't be remunerated because at that stage it was a decent legal aid system which probably yeah. remunerated. And a lot of them just turned it down because they, they basically said, I'm just not going to act for the IRA. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the history of the Cabaret rule is it developed in the late 19th century precisely when the so-called Fenian defendants, the Irish oh, really? terrorist defendants, couldn't get yeah. English barristers to represent them. And that's when the Bar Council yeah. um, developed this rule. I think you're right. And an interesting question will be, who will be prepared? I, I suspect there will be people prepared to represent them. But some people might not want at the moment to represent Russian oligarchs, yeah. for example. Yeah. Uh, well, or, to, or, or to bring litigation which might be categorized as slap litigation. I mean, who at the moment would want to bring a libel action on behalf of a yeah. Russian oligarch against yes. uh, an English journalist? So no, these are areas which are going to be... Yes, and that's where... Well, having a, that is, Ken is absolutely right. That there is a real problem at the moment in people who are listed, uh, designated under the sanctions legislation, in getting legal representation. Many of, of, of the international law firms are not taking one. In fact, let me just... I wanted to read it into the record. Uh, a rather heroic judgment recently in, in the British Virgin Arts. This was commercial litigation which involved VTB, the Russian bank. That I, think, can I, just, I think our colleague Hugh Tomlinson will be delighted to hear these words. Yeah, well, um, what happened was that in the context of ongoing litigation, VTB becomes sanctioned. And then OGA, which is an international law firm specialising in offshore work, applied in the BVI to come off the record. Uh, and the basic reason they wanted to come off the record in the litigation is damage to their reputation yes. in acting for a Russian client. And, uh, and the judge uh, said this, there is in this territory no, or at least no express cabaret principle, thus OJ would not be under a professional obligation to take on VTB as a new client. However, once OJ do take on VTB as client in litigation, the position changes. They are, unless disinstructed by VTB, obliged to continue to represent VTB to the best of their skill and ability, unless and until the court permits them to come off the record. The duty to continue to act is self-evident when a firm of legal practitioners is representing a defendant in criminal proceedings. Many criminal clients manifest varying degrees of unsavoriness. There has never been a ground for withdrawal from a retainer. The situation with civil clients is the same. VTB may be a pariah, as OGA submitted. That does not afford a ground for its legal representatives to withdraw from representing them. Even pariahs have rights. And I think bloody good that he said. I mean, one knows this is quite a common thing that prestigious firms of solicitors will say, we don't want to act for so and so because of a paedophile or a mass murderer or someone like that because our other clients wouldn't like yeah. that. Yes. And that's a very, very common thing. And I've often been told, well, you know, do you think so and so is going to come to you? He's not going to want to be represented by the person who represented Myra Hindley, the Bulger Boys, etc., etc. And again, if one wanted an easy life, one would just choose uh, glamorous clients, uh, underdogs who everybody sympathizes with. But having the, the professional rule at least gives one a, a bit of stiffening of the yeah. spine to yeah. say, no, that's actually my duty. It's an important part of the rule of law. I'm going to do it. And, and, and if my other clients don't like it, that's that's tough, they ought to understand the system. But Edward, is the, is, the, is, the, is the reality that this sort of work has just come to you because of your reputation as a brilliant lawyer, your 
empathy, your well-known attachment to, to to rights and the rule of law. Has this work just come to you, or, or have you actively sought it out? I mean, do, do you want to do this work? I uh, look. There are occasions when one would like to get off the merry-go-round and sort of say, "I've just had a, uh, I've had enough." But I think everybody should be represented. I, I find it a challenge representing someone who's unpopular. I recognise that some ritzy clients or would-be clients might think twice before instructing someone like me or Tim and them, who regularly represents what would be regarded as unsavoury characters. But the answer is, I don't mind representing unpopular people, but whenever I'm put under pressure, why does the cab, why, why, why do the nasty people all the... Wave you down. I, well, why do, why do so many unpopular people wave you down? The answer is... Why are you the cab driver who was picking up a drunk on Friday <laughs> But of course, I have to say, I've represented many decent, honourable people threatened with human rights violations who actually don't mind the fact. That, I also uh, think, I mean, in my own view about this um, is, I think, quite similar to yours. You know, the more unpopular a person is, the more the sense is that this is a person who doesn't deserve to be represented, the more I want to do the case, mm -hmm. to, to be frank. I mean, uh, yeah. one of the cases that I took on a few years ago was to act on the appeal of David Norris, who had been convicted many years after the event uh, of the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Now, it's hard to think of a case in which a person's death caused more outrage and, and so on, and to act for anyone charged with murdering him you know, was not popular. And the, uh, I took it on an appeal because the Silk had represented him in the first instance and withdrawn from the case and had written an advice saying that he felt that he had made an error uh, in the conduct of the trial. And I came under a lot of pressure not to, to do from people within my chambers, not to do the case. And I have to say, the more people try to persuade me not to do it, the more inclined I was to do it. Well, you certainly need an element of bloody mindedness in this area. Yeah, yeah, no, I think yeah. so. And, but, but yes, and then a, and a slightly robust approach. But the, the other thing I'd say is, if we look at the Putin stuff now, there was a time when Zakaev, who was one of my cards, was a deeply unpopular. Just Zakaev, he was the deputy prime minister of Chechnya, hmm. uh, who was alleged to be effectively a terrorist, um, leading um, resistance to the Russian the army, Russian. and alleged to have tortured uh, priests and etc. Uh, where the British government were sending out signals to Putin that they were going to get Zakaev extradited pretty fast, and he wasn't a popular person. Now, uh, uh, when you look at uh, the fact Putin had. Uh, Putin and his his cohorts had drummed up a fabricated case against him. You know he'd be something of a hero. Uh, and but the same is true of of, of Kodakovsky and his people who were um, you know alleged these are Russian oligarchs. Um, they were op opponents of, of of Putin. So there is also something to be said for representing unpopular people because often it turns out when you really go into it that they're in the right and that the, the people who are prosecuting or persecuting them are in the wrong. Well, you have to be very very careful in our in our line of work making judgments about political figures because yeah. because that's all context isn't it no no that's and, true. and no, context no. can change all the more important that the exactly. person gets a fair 
representation at the time when, I mean, uh, you know, Putin was being given a banquet at Buckingham Palace at the time that Zakayev was facing yeah. extradition. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and there was some evidence that he was leaning uh, on people to make sure that um, Zakayev got, got, got extradited. I have to say, one of the things that surprised me is there isn't uh, equivalent pressure on solicitors to uh, take on work, even if um, it's for an unpopular cause. Otherwise, they can simply yeah. refuse yeah. to act. And, yeah. the, and the Stephanie Boyce, who's the current president of the Law Society, made a statement a few weeks ago about, uh, well, she was expressing support for law firms who represent Russian clients. And she said, it's the job of solicitors to represent their clients, whoever they may be, so that the courts act fairly. This is how the public can be confident they live in a country that respects the rule of law, unlike Putin's tyrannical regime. No. I mean, I think that's, that's an important point. I think it's a very important point. And it, it's been no. quite interesting in, in, in the House of Lords recently to hear what some peers and, 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 and in the House of Commons, what some MPs have been saying about lawyers no. who have been acting for oligarchs, not, 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 ju not just in defamation cases, but in ordinary commercial cases. In other words, it, it's now regarded as virtually illegitimate to have over the last 10 years represented oligarchs in commercial cases, although we were, for most of those, most of that period, had no problem with Putin at all. Indeed, we're trying to develop relations with him. And, and I think some of the, some of the speeches in Parliament have been startlingly yeah. illiberal. Well, it's, it's, I suppose, yes, I think it's very easy to drum up hatred for lawyers, particularly hatred for lawyers who are making large sums of money. Yeah. Uh, but it's essential that oligarchs who might well say, well, none of my money's got anything to do with yeah. Putin or um, I've actually denounced him or I'm actually opposed to him. They are entitled to be defended. And, and, and once one starts drumming up this kind of uh, mob outcry against individuals who def defend, then it's very easy for that disease to be caught. Well, tyrants always like, I mean, ty tyrannical governments, totalitarian governments always associate lawyers with the sins of their clients. That's one of the first rhetorical poses that they adopt. Difficult clients, unpopular clients, clients who've done dreadful things. How's that? I mean, how's that been? How's that impacted? Its impacts at all in your in your in your personal life? Uh, one thing I was surprised about, but uh, this may be changing, is that even acting for. Myra Hindley for John Venables, the um, accused of the Alger killing, and uh, obviously for various IRA defenders, and then for the Islamic defendants. Hmm. Um, that one did get letters, funnily enough, sometimes from people who ought to know better, saying, "Why are you doing this?" Yeah. And I would. Do you uh, answer? Do you uh, uh, if I know the person well, I do. Sometimes I don't bother. Death but, threats? Do you get death threats? Um, no, I don't think I. I've, I, I don't. I don't think. I mean, maybe veiled threats, but no. And I think that there is, or there has been, a bit of a feeling in the English public. One that barristers are just hard guns anyway, and therefore, you know, we we wouldn't expect anything else. They've got no morals. They've got no morals. So, 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 and maybe, maybe they're just hard guns. And, and two, perhaps, you know, some people do respect them. There is a bit of a culture of respect for for, for representation because 
compared to if, if I talk to people in other jurisdictions, um, people in the Caribbean representing the defendants accused of murder get really, really rough times. People in America, uh, people in, in you know, Eastern Europe, they are identified with their colors. Well, one of the most outrageous things in the recent confirmation hearing of Judge, uh, Justice Catania Brown uh, in the Senate a few weeks ago was she used to be, before she became... This is the confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court. Supreme Court judge, she's now, she has been confirmed, as you know, but during the hearing, many of the Republicans were attacking her mm. for the fact that she'd be a public defender. Yeah. She's yeah. the only judge on the Supreme Court who has ever done that type exactly. of work before. And, yeah. and then they criticised her for the judgments that she'd given yes. to do with sentencing people, yeah. child sex offenders. But it's all, that is deeply sinister. But it's all caught up in the, in the states of this concept of a mob lawyer, isn't it? Yeah. A lawyer who's yeah. in league with his clients. Yes, so, yes. Uh, no, I mean, I, that's right. I mean, the respect probably is dependent on the sense that we do do our job, but we do our job without within the law as yeah. uh, and, make, and and once people start suspecting that that's not the case and that it isn't an honourable profession, yeah. then then I think that kind of well we'll leave them alone. They're just doing their job. The issue in a case that I did a few years ago was that because my client had been acquitted, he was being released oh, to right. return to his home, oh, right. which was the place where he'd done the terrible thing that he'd done, and the person he'd done it to was still in the home. Yeah. So this was the issue that this person who yeah. was being released was going back into that environment. And that's another question for, for us, isn't it? That we're constantly being accused, or sometimes being accused, I shouldn't say constantly, sometimes being accused of securing the release of people who go back into society yeah. to to perpetuate the risk well, that they've always represented. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I think that when people say to me, you know, what about the moral dilemma of representing someone you know is guilty? Yeah. And of course, we never know. We exactly. never we never do know. But actually, the real moral dilemmas are, first, as you say, when you're representing, if you're representing someone at a parole board hearing and you suspect that though they're saying the right things, they are in fact a danger uh, and you you, you don't know because none of us know the future but you suspect that they may that is a real moral dilemma yeah, yeah. and and the other one is when you're acting in a a custody case for the wrong parent yeah. and you're thinking uh, I hope that my analysis and eloquence is not going to get the children into the wrong yeah. uh, and, and there you really do have to have some faith in the system that you know it's your duty to do the best you can um, and to make all the obvious points but the the, 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 the parole panel or the um, in, in, in the case of the um, custody Dispute, the judge will see through um, the protestations and, and, and see to the reality. But uh, but when people say, "What about the moral dilemmas of defending the the guilty?" Actually, that, those two things, of re as you say, the release of someone who you think I'm not so sure this person is safe to go out, yeah. or, or the wrong a custody case. I mean, that really is. Yeah. And and so I think there are moral dilemmas in our job. Yeah. But the uh, system, I mean, yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, and I think, however, it is all linked to the idea that the public often have that, oh, well, how can you defend someone you know is guilty? And I think once you sit down and explain to somebody, yeah. um, and I said completely bigoted, um, firstly, you don't act for somebody who tells you they're guilty. Yeah. You advise, you yeah. tell them what the weight of the evidence yeah. is and so on. But it's that distribution of power or, or the 
well within the system, which guarantees uh, ideally that the right or should lead to the right outcome. I was I was explaining to people by saying that an English criminal trial is not really about who did what; it's about what the prosecution can prove. Yeah. And the entire focus of the defence lawyer is on the prosecution evidence, what it shows, what it doesn't show, where it's reliable, yeah. where it's not yeah. reliable. And actually, after a year or two, you stop thinking about whether your client who protests his innocence, you stop thinking about whether he's guilty yeah. or not, and you, yeah. you're just focusing on. Yeah, the process, which is the process best designed to secure a just result. Right. After all. Yeah. Well, on on that note, um, Edward, it's been a very interesting discussion. It's ranged wider than I think we anticipated. Um, but thank you very much. And it's been very good to have you back again, Edward, to discuss other matters of importance. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy. We hope you enjoyed that discussion. And heatwave permitting, we'll see you next week. Our producer and editor is Billy Lawrence.